0: Number One Branch Line, The Signalman, by Charles Dickens Hello! Below there! When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with the flag in his hand furled round his short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep Cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what, but I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had had to shade my eyes before I saw him at all. Hello! Below! Below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again and, raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing too soon with the repetition of my idle question. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back as though it had forced to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me, and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again and saw him referling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his roll-up flag towards a point on my level some two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right, and made for that point. There, after looking closely about me, I found a rough, descending, zigzag path, notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had had his left hand on his chin, and his left elbow rested on his right hand crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped for a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and, stepping out upon the level of the railroad, and drawing nearer to him i saw that he was a dark solemn man with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows his post was in a solitary and dismal place as i ever saw on either side a dripping wet wall of jagged stone excluded all view but a strip of sky the perspective one way was only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon the shorter perspective in the other direction terminated in a gloomy red light and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel in whose massive architecture there is a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chilled me as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then, removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and had riveted my attention from my look down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for, besides that I am not happy in the opening of any conversation. There is something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth and looked all about, as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I proved the fixed eyes and the saturnine face that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. In my turn, I stepped back, but in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. "'You look at me,' I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. "'I was doubtful,' he returned, "'whether I had seen you before.' "'Where?' He pointed to the red light he had looked at. "'There?' I said. Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound in the affirmative. "'My good fellow, what should I do there?' "'However, be that as it may, I was never there, you may swear.' "'I think I may,' he rejoined. "'Yes, I am sure I may.' His manner cleared, like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. "'Had he much to do there?' "'Yes, that was to say, he had enough responsibility to bear. "'But exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him, "'and of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none.' To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do under that charge. Regarding those many long and lonely hours which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals, and tried a little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty always to remain in that channel of damp air? And could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than others, and the same held good as the certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows. But, being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, and a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial face and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well-educated, and, I hope I might say without offense, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such situations would hardly be found wanting among large bodies of men. He had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and he knew it was so, more or less, in any great railway staff. He had been, when young if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down, and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that, he had made his bed, and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another, and he accepted his situation. All that I have here condensed, he said, in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire, He threw in the word, Sir, from time to time, especially when he referred to his use, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once, he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed and make some verbal communication with the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, except for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face towards the little bell which did not ring, opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of these occasions he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him which I had remarked, but had not been able to define, when we were so far asunder. "'said I, when I rose to leave him. "'You almost make me think I have met a contented man. "'I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. "'I believe I used to be so,' he rejoined in the low voice when she had spoken. "'But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled.' "'He would have recalled the words if he could. "'He said them, however, and I took them up quickly. "'With what? What is your trouble?' "'It is very difficult to impart, sir. "'It is very, very difficult to speak of.' If ever you make another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. When shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar low voice, till you found the way up. When you found it, don't call out. And when you're at the top, don't call out. His manner made the place strike colder to me. But I said no more than, very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. No, not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admittedly, those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they are conveyed to you in some supernatural way? No? He wished me night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails, with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom, with his white light on. I have not called out, I said when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good evening, then, and here's my hand. Good evening, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved. Violently waved. This way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. In the name of heaven, clear the way. When moonlight night, said the man... I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello! Below there! I started up, looked from the door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And again, Hello! Below there! Look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure calling, What's wrong? What happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel, I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran up at it and had my arms stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, I ran on into the tunnel five hundred yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance, and I saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again, faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me. I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it. I came down again, and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways, all well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight and how figures, originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye, were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom have become conscious of the nature of their affliction, and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while. And he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who had so often passed winter nights there, alone and watching. But he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident of this line happened, and within ten hours the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind. But it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account in dealing with such a subject. Though to be sure, I must admit, I added, for I thought I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me. Men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished i again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions this he said again laying his hands upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with hollow eyes was just a year ago six or seven months passed and i have recovered from the surprise and shock when one morning as the day was breaking i standing at that door looked towards the red light and saw the specter again he stopped with a fixed look at me did it cry out no it was silent Did it wave its arm? No. It leaned against the shaft of the light with both hands before the face, like this. Once more I followed his action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed? nothing came of this he touched me in the arm with his forefinger twice or thrice giving a ghastly nod each time that very day as the train came out of the tunnel he went on i noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads and something waved i saw it just in time to signal the driver to stop he shut off and put his brake on but the train drifted past here a 150 yards or more I ran after it, and as I went along I heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young woman had died instantaneously in one of the compartments, and she was brought in here and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily I pushed my chair back as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to him. "'True, sir, true, precisely as it happened, so I tell it to you.' I could think of nothing to say to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind in the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago, ever since it has been there now and again by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light? What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible, with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, In the name of heaven, clear the way. Then he went on. I have no peace or rest for it it calls to me for many minutes together in an agonized manner below there look out look out it stands waving to me it rings my little bell i caught it that did it ring your bell yesterday evening when i was here and you went to the door twice why see said i how your imagination misleads you my eyes were on the bell and my ears were open to the bell and if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times, no, nor any other time, except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the spectre's ring with the man's. The ghost ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs the eye. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the specter seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times, he repeated firmly. Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step while he stood in the doorway. There is the danger light. There is the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There is the high, wet stones of the cutting. There are the stars above them do you see it i asked him taking particular note of his face his eyes were prominent and strained but not very much more so perhaps than my own had been when i had directed them earnestly towards the same spot no he answered it is not there agreed said i we went in again shut the door and resumed our seats i was thinking how best to improve this advantage if it might be called one when he took up with the conversation in such a matter-of-course way "'So assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, "'that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. "'By this time you will fully understand, sir,' he said, "'that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, "'what does the specter mean?' "'I was not sure,' I told him, "'that I fully understood.' "'What is it warning against?' he said, "'ruminating with his eyes on the fire, "'and only by times turning them on me. "'What is the danger? Where is the danger?' There is danger overhanging, somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. But surely this is the cruel haunting of me. What can I do? He pulled off his handkerchief and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on either side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it. He went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work message danger take care answer what danger where message don't know, but take care they would replace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. it was the mental torture of a conscientious man, oppressed beyond endurance by unintelligible responsibility involving life. when it first stood under the danger light he went on putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples, in an extremity of feverish distress? Why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen? Why not tell me how it could have been averted, if it could have been averted, when on its second coming it hit its face? Why not tell me instead, she's going to die, let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions only to show me that its warnings were true, and so to prepare me for the third? Why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all questions of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort, I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands of his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration of how I ought to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact. But how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, Still he held a most important trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with him and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in those parts. A change in his time of duty would come round next night. He had appraised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would then be time to go to the signalman's box. Before perusing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men standing at a short distance to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, having made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing, self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there, and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. "'What is the matter?' I asked the men. signalman has been killed this morning, sir.' not the man belonging to that box yes sir not the man i know you will recognize him sir if you knew him said the man who spoke for the others solemnly uncovering his own head and raising an end of the tarpaulin for his face is quite composed oh how did this happen how did this happen i asked turning from one to another as the hut closed in again he was cut down by an engine sir no man in england knew his work better But somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just a broad day. He had struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her, and she cut him down. That man drove her, and he was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man, who wore a rough, dark dress, stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. "'Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir,' he said, I saw him at the end. Like as if i saw him down a perspective glass there was no time to check speed and i knew him to be very careful as he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle i shut it off and we were running down upon him and i called to him as loud as i could call what did you say i said below there look out look out in the name of heaven clear the way i started ah it was a dreadful time sir and never left off calling to him I put this arm before my eyes, not to see, and I waved this arm to the last, but it was no use, without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than the other. I shall, in closing it, point out the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind, to the gesticulation he had imitated. Thank you.